listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number four in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Judgment of Paris. So welcome back. My name is Jeff Wright, and you're listening to Trojan War, the podcast, and we're currently into episode four, the episode titled The Judgment of Paris. Now, if you're four episodes into the podcast series, you're likely pretty familiar with how the whole thing operates. I'm telling a serialized story, as you know. But if for some reason you happen to have stumbled across this episode independent of the series, well, you can hang around if you want, but I'd encourage you, I'd really strongly encourage you to run over to my website, trojanwarpodcast.com, where you'll find the preceding three episodes in the story. And like any story, if you get in at the beginning and you get to know the plot and the characters, well, you'll just have a heck of an awful lot more fun for the balance of the episodes. So, it's been a long time since we have left Zeus with the problem of finding a human judge for a beauty contest between three goddesses. As you recall, Zeus was hosting a wedding up in Mount Olympus when the goddess of discord had arrived in the room, throwing an apple into the proceedings, an apple titled, For the Fairest, For the Most Beautiful. And Zeus was faced with the difficult decision of determining which of the three most powerful, dangerous, and vindictive goddesses on Mount Olympus, do you award an apple to, which says, for the fairest. The contestants were his wife Hera, queen of the gods, his daughter Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and Aphrodite, the goddess of lust and sexual passion. All three deities demanded to be awarded the apple for the fairest, and Zeus had realized that he was in a no-win situation. So Zeus had told the ladies after some panicky deliberations that he wouldn't judge the contest, but rather he'd foist the problem off on a human judge. And once a human made the decision between which of the goddesses was indeed the fairest, then the two losing goddesses were free, as far as Zeus was concerned, to smite at will and ruin the poor human's life. The goddess who won, well, if she chose, she could stay around and champion or protect the judge. That Zeus didn't care about. As long as the discord stayed out of Mount Olympus and was down on Earth among us humans, Zeus was happy to wash his hands of the whole affair. So the ladies had left the room and Zeus had decided, well, I need to find a human. So he he called in the messenger of the gods, a deity named Hermes. Uh, He turned to Hermes and he said, Hermes, I need you to do me an errand and I need you to do it in a hurry. Hermes, I need you to tour around the Mediterranean basin and find a human being who will judge a beauty contest between three dangerous, vain, and vindictive goddesses. Now, the reason that Zeus chose Hermes, of course, is because Hermes, as some of you know, had a particular unique deific power. 
Hermes was the messenger of the gods, and Hermes could travel at incredible lightning-fast speeds through the heaven and earth delivering messages. Uh, he, Well, in the days before the internet, Hermes was the quickest way to get data or information from point A to point B. So Zeus had turned around and said, Hermes, do your thing. Now, just for fun, folks, if you're ever looking up statues or images or paintings of the Greek gods from this particular story, there's an easy way to recognize Hermes. Hermes is the guy that will be wearing a helmet with wings on it. And if you look really closely, you'll see that there's also little wings growing out of Hermes' ankles. And if you're kind of watching this and you grew up like I did, enthralled with comic books and other forms of modern comic book mythology, then immediately you're going to recognize that, that Hermes is actually a DC Comics character, or I've got that actually in the reverse. DC Comics ripped off Hermes very, very clearly, and they created the superhero that we now call the Flash. Well, Zeus commissioned Hermes, and Hermes left Mount Olympus like a flash and went zooming through the earth trying to find a judge for the contest. And of course, the first thing Hermes did is he, he went to important kings. He went to kings, princes, potentates, that kind of thing, and, and said, I'm Hermes, I'm a messenger from the gods. Would you like to judge me to contest between three deities? And of course, word had got out. And no intelligent king who, who had the brains to, the brains to think it through was in any way going to say yes to that offer. No intelligent king wanted to be in a position of, of judging between three goddesses because, well, you knew that two of them were going to lose whatever you did. And then your kingdom was going to be smitten or destroyed or, or wrecked or ravished or something like that by the loser. So, Hermes went everywhere, but everywhere he went, kings, as soon as they heard Hermes' offer, said, I, I'm not touching that. So Hermes had realized after a while that he was going to have to go to a different class of judge, I suppose. He, he was going to have to find a judge who was so disconnected from the social network and the gossip that the judge was completely clueless as to the proceedings up on Mount Olympus, completely clueless about this beauty contest, and just naive or ill-informed enough that he thought judging a contest between goddesses was a good thing for a human male to do. So Hermes went looking, I guess, off the beaten path a little bit, traveling around and into, you know, the more rural parts of the ancient Bronze Age world. And eventually Hermes made his way up to a mountain, a mountain outside the city of Troy, a mountain called Mount Ida. And way up in the high reaches of Mount Ida, Hermes found a little path, a place where only shepherds go. And wouldn't you know it, underneath an olive tree near that particular path where only shepherds go, Hermes looked down and he spotted a 18-year-old shepherd, a young man sitting under an olive tree looking after, and you know how many sheep the guy's looking after. He's looking after 15 sheep. Well, Hermes, in a flash, stepped down, revealed himself to the shepherd, whose name you know, of course, is Paris, introduced himself, said, hello, I'm Hermes, I'm the messenger of the gods, and I'm here to ask you if you would like to judge a beauty contest between three stunningly beautiful and gorgeous women. Well, Paris looked up, he thought about it for a very brief moment, and Paris demonstrated in his response one of Paris's lifelong challenges. Paris, Paris just had an insatiable appetite for the ladies. And so even though part of Paris recognized what every other human being who had been asked about judging this contest had recognized, that this was a dangerous thing to be doing, poor Paris... Well, he was 18 years old. He was a good-looking, charming young guy, and he just couldn't resist. An opportunity to sort of check out and judge three women, particularly goddesses, was just too, too tempting for the boy. So he turned around to Hermes and said, I'd be happy to do the deed. 
Well, Hermes had placed a golden apple in his hand, an apple which said for the fairest and said the ladies will arrive in a moment. And then, well, you make your decision, give the apple to the winner and, and, and good luck to you, son. And Hermes had vanished up to Mount Olympus and reported to Zeus with the news. He explained to Zeus that he had had to cut some corners in finding a qualified judge, but that the shepherd boy that he had chosen, this 18-year-old boy, Paris, was comely, incredibly charming, good-looking, friendly, obviously not particularly bright, or he wouldn't have said yes to it, but he'd have to do. And Zeus, recognizing that he wanted to put an end to the discord up in Mount Olympus, said, I'll, I'll let the ladies know. So Zeus had called the three goddesses into his study and said, ladies, I've, I've found an independent, highly qualified judge for the contest. He knows his sheep. You have half an hour, then get down there, do your thing, and, and then we're going to be done with this whole discord golden apple business completely. And so the ladies had prepared for the contest. And 15 minutes later, in a blinding flash of deific glory and brilliance, the three most powerful goddesses in creation appeared in front of an 18-year-old shepherd boy sitting under an olive tree. Well, folks, by rights, Paris, the moment that he cast his eyes onto those three goddesses, should have died on the spot. There are all kinds of stories in Greek mythology about poor human men who get into liaisons by accident or deliberately with goddesses or even see them bathing naked or something like that. And in every one of these stories, the message is very, very clear. Human guys aren't supposed to be checking out goddesses and particularly judging goddesses in beauty contests and things like that. So the only way that Paris managed to survive the experience is that the goddesses knew this. They wanted him to judge the contest. So do you remember that mist I talked about way back in episode one that Zeus would use to sort of conceal Mount Olympus from prying tourists? Well, the goddesses surrounded themselves in just enough mist that Paris could actually look at them and make an independent judge on their beauty without actually having his retinas scarred. So Paris could actually see what the goddesses looked like, I guess, if you will, in more anthropomorphic terms. Now, normally a, a goddess by uh, human standards would be overwhelmingly, stunningly beautiful, and Paris wouldn't have been able to distinguish between them. But with, with the mist in place, a little bit of the mist, sort of taking the edge off their deific glory, Paris had a chance. And, and here's, here's what he was faced with. Here are the three women standing in front of him. I'll, I'll describe them, and you can decide which one you think should win the apple. The first contestant, of course, was Athena, Zeus's daughter, the goddess of wisdom. Now, I've told you many times that Zeus's daughter, Athena, was a goddess of wisdom, but there's a couple of other things I need to add. She was a goddess of other things too. And, and the first thing is, Athena was also the goddess of courage and success in warfare. Athena was Athena warrior princess, if you will. She was a brilliant fighter and she could imbue men with courage and, and, and glory and confidence in battle. The ancient Athenians actually had a statue built in the center of their city in Athens, which celebrated Athena as the warrior goddess. They referred to her by the word victory, and, and the word victory in Greek, curiously, and a lot of fun with this, is actually Nike. So they actually refer to Nike Athena, and that tells you why your t-shirt says Nike and why your running shoes say Nike, and that little swoosh is supposed to be sort of Athena's winged glory kind of thing. So so Athena was a warrior goddess along with the goddess of wisdom, but there was another thing about Athena. Athena was one of the three Olympian female deities who was a perpetual virgin, and Athena was well, beautiful in one way, but she had a, a cold, aesthetic, intellectual beauty. She was almost 
portrayed most of the time as asexual. She she was not a goddess that oozed femininity. Uh, Athena oozed cerebral wisdom in one manifestation and deadly, deadly, deadly military ability in another. But Athena never oozed sexiness or haughtiness or anything like that. So Athena wasn't really going to be much of a competitor in this beauty contest. She just didn't have the right goods to win the golden apple. And then there was, of course, the next contestant, Hera. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to be very careful here. I'm going to tread into a delicate conversation. I'll do my best. But the thing to remember about Hera, folks, is that Hera was the goddess of marriage, of nice, stable, long-term, faithful, monogamous marriage. And while Hera was still capable of inciting lust and sexual passion inside of her partner, her husband Zeus, well, they had been married a long time. And let's just say that Hera sort of couldn't do it naturally. She had to work at it quite a bit to get Zeus sort of into the mood. There's a very telling scene in Homer's Iliad, I think it's in book 14, where Hera decides for completely selfish and nefarious purposes, which have nothing to do with romance. She's she's actually trying to distract her husband Zeus from doing something that he should be doing. Hera decides that the best way to distract her husband is to seduce him, to get him into the sack, as it will. And well, poor Hera, it, it takes her all morning to, to work to get herself ready so she's confident that she's sexy and seductive enough that she can actually repeak her husband's interest. She has to work in her hair, her makeup, her jewelry, her perfume. And, and then in despair, poor Hera actually has to go running off for additional help. And, and it's very telling where she goes for additional help. She goes to the goddess Aphrodite and she says, Aphrodite, I need a little bit of help. And sort of in the nookie department with my husband, could you give me an aphrodisiac. And Aphrodite, of course, the goddess of lust and sexual passion, provides Hera with the aphrodisiac, and Hera manages to pull the trick with her husband. But it wasn't easy. Hera had to work at it. Whereas Aphrodite, well, Aphrodite just had to walk into a room and everybody's pants dropped to the floor. She was a force of nature. She oozed and exuded sexual lust and passion. Now, I've got to give Hera some credit. Hera would be there the morning after and the week after and the month after and the years after, whereas, well, Aphrodite was sort of a quick, well, lust and sexual passion are very quick and temporal things. Aphrodite didn't stick around much after the deed had been done. She was off in some other flirtation or conquest. Uh, She was not the god of stable long-term relationships. She was the god of Well, the god worshipped by 18-year-old boys like Paris. Well, Paris looked at the three goddesses, and clearly, as you can see, there'd be no contest between which of the three goddesses was going to get the apple. But Athena, realizing that she was going to lose this contest and desperately wanting the apple, had thought for a moment, and being the goddess of wisdom, she had thought very quickly, and Athena had come up with a ploy to sort of reconfigure the contest and give her and Hera a fighting chance at winning the apple. So Athena had stepped forward right before Paris had given the apple to Aphrodite, and Athena had said, just a minute, son. And Athena had removed just enough of the veil of mist from her body that when Paris looked at Athena, his eyes began to burn, and he realized, I'm in some real trouble here. I'm seeing a goddess in all of her glory, and it was overwhelming. And when Athena had Paris's attention, she said, you know, Paris, you really can't judge in our beauty, because if we remove the mist, all three of us goddesses, then we are so overwhelming that there is no way you can choose, because you will be dead on the ground under that olive tree. 
So Athena had proposed to Paris an alternative form of contest. Instead of a beauty contest, which Athena reasoned very quickly wasn't really fair, Athena proposed that each of the goddesses offer Paris a gift, and that Paris could then choose between the three gifts he was offered and award the apple to the goddess who had given Paris the most attractive and desirable gift. Now, Athena was using the gift euphemistically. Essentially, what Athena was proposing is that instead of a beauty contest, the goddesses hold a bribery contest. And, and Athena had done the math very quickly. Immediately, Aphrodite screamed and she protested and complained and said, no, it's a beauty contest and I'm going to win. But, of course, Hera, who realized that she wasn't going to win a beauty contest with Aphrodite in the room, had said, no, 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 no. I, 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 like, I like my sister Athena's idea. Let's have a vote on this. And Athena and Hera had outvoted Aphrodite, and the contest went from being a beauty contest into being a contest of which of the three goddesses could offer Paris the most attractive bribe. Well, now, of course, Hera was on much more firm and stable and reliable territory because Hera, as queen of the gods, had pretty deep pockets in the bribery department. So Hera had stepped forward and looked at Paris and essentially promised Paris political power and glory. She, she had offered him kingdoms, dominions, principalities, the whole nine yards. She had basically said, Paris, you know, you give me the apple, I'll make you the greatest ruler that has ever walked the face of the planet. Well, Paris listened to the offer, and Paris recognized intellectually that this was an attractive offer. And and as a Greek man raised inside of a culture which valued this sort of thing, Paris should have grabbed onto the offer of political power gratefully right away. But somehow it just didn't seem too enticing or exciting to the 18-year-old shepherd boy. So he paused and he waited to listen to what Athena offered. Well, Athena stepped forward and she appraised Paris for a moment, and then she made her pitch. She offered Paris courage and prowess in battle. And again, this was Athena's domain. And, and she said, Paris, and not only will I give you courage and prowess in battle, but as an added bonus, Paris, I'm going to toss in a bit of wisdom too, because it looks like you could use a little bit of help in that department, son. Well, again, as a Bronze Age warrior, Paris should have grabbed on this. The, the two greatest things valued inside of Paris's contemporaries were power and, and, and military power and glory and courage or prowess in battle. And, and here Paris was being offered both of them. Once again, though, the 18-year-old the shepherd boy kind of sighed and hummed and hawed and thought, these aren't really doing it for me. And then, of course, the third goddess stepped forward, Aphrodite, the goddess of everything south of the Waste. Well, she wasted no time. She looked at Paris and she had a pretty good sense of what was making this boy tick. So Aphrodite made her offer. And in a nutshell, what Aphrodite did is she offered Paris the undying, crazy animal sexual lust of the hottest woman on the planet. Aphrodite basically said, Paris, you give me the apple and I will find you the most beautiful, stunning, smoking woman in this entire planet. And I'll work my magic on her and that girl will become insatiable. Now... I know I'm using some pretty graphic explanations of Aphrodite's offer here, and I'm doing so quite deliberately because what happens with this story, of course, is that it gets sanitized down through the ages for different audiences or groups. And you might have you might have heard the version of the story which says that Aphrodite offered Paris the most beautiful woman in the world as his wife. Well, as his wife is quite a euphemism here. Aphrodite wasn't in the marriage counseling or setting up long-term stable marriages department. She wasn't the goddess of that kind of thing. Hera might have offered that. Paris, I will find you a very attractive woman and then the two of you can get married and stay together. But Aphrodite wasn't interested in things like as his wife. 
Aphrodite's interests were short-term, transitory, temporal, and highly, highly, highly physical. Aphrodite was not the goddess of long-term relationships. So obviously what she was offering Paris was a fling. Aphrodite was essentially turning around and saying, Paris, life is short. Have an affair. Well, I've told you enough about the story that it's very clear which of the three goddesses is going to win the apple. And Paris immediately upon hearing this bribe of Aphrodite's had placed the golden apple into Aphrodite's hand and declared her the winner of the contest. Well, the other two goddesses, of course, Athena and Herod, had looked at each other, shaken their heads, and, and then vanished off in a puff of angry smoke to Mount Olympus, where they proceeded to plot their revenge against Paris, his family, his city, and everybody he possibly knew. But Aphrodite, the goddess of lust and sexual passion, stuck around. She, she was going to stick with Paris because Paris was her kind of boy. She, she stepped over beside Paris and, and she said, Paris, don't you worry about those other two. I will look after you. I will look after you. And, and here's a few things, Paris, that you need to know. It was an added bonus since you've given me the apple. And Aphrodite had then revealed the most remarkable information to Paris. Aphrodite had turned around and explained to Paris that he wasn't really a shepherd that he was actually a prince of the city of Troy, the city at the base of the mountain, a city that Paris had never bothered to go visit. And Aphrodite explained that not only was he the prince of that city, he was in second in line to the throne of that city. And Paris was confused by this. He didn't understand it. He said, you know, goddess, I, I, I grew up here. I, my, my father was a shepherd. He, 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 I, that's the only life I ever know. You know, you're telling me I'm a prince and explained that and Aphrodite had sighed and said it's a long story and for a boy who just turned down wisdom it's way too complex for you to understand but trust me on this Paris Paris you are a prince of that city and then Aphrodite had gone on to counsel Paris to seriously consider leaving his life as a shepherd and heading down to the city of Troy and assuming his rightful place as a prince of that city and an heir to that city's throne. Uh, Paris had protested and said, I don't know how to be a prince. I've got no training in it. And Aphrodite had made a promise. She said, look, you go down and you do it, Paris. Here's what'll happen. When you get to the gates of the city, I'll work a minor bit of magic on the people in that city, particularly on, on your parents and the other members of the royal family. And they will completely forget all the horrible prophecies that they learned about you 18 years ago when, before you were born. They'll completely forget all of those. Further, they'll completely forget that you've ever been away from home. They'll just assume that you've been gone for a little while at camp. Their whole brains will be a little bit fuzzy about the whole thing. But Paris, all you have to do is move into the palace, roll with it. You like being a prince and I'll make sure that I smooth things over nicely for you. So Paris thought this sounded like a wonderful plan, but then he turned to the, to the burning question. He said, and when do I get the hottie? When do, I, when do I get the insatiable lust of the most beautiful, hot, sexy woman in the planet? That's what I really want, Aphrodite. That's why I gave you the apple. And Aphrodite had said, that's going to take me a few more minutes, Paris. I've got the candidate. I got the girl in mind. But Paris, I need a few moments to kind of work some geopolitical magic. I got some strings to pull before I can set it up so that you're in a situation where you have an opportunity to meet her. But here's the thing, Paris. Don't worry about it. Someday in the very near future, you will step into a room, Paris, and you will see a woman. And when you see that woman, you will know that she is a girl I promised you. And then, Paris, all you have to do is call my name three times. I'll arrive invisibly beside you with my little buddy Cupid here. And we'll work our magic in that girl and she'll be putty in your hands. So, folks, I should likely describe this little buddy Cupid. Aphrodite, the goddess of lust and sexual passion, was always accompanied by a very small child. It was actually her son. And the, and the child's name in, in Greek was actually not Cupid. It was Eros. And if that sounds an awful lot like the word erotic, well, it should because that's the root word and that's where we get the term erotic. 
Now, this little kid, Eros, who the Romans later changed his name to Cupid, you'll recognize if you ever see statues or if you see paintings of him or if you're fortunate enough to bump into him on a street on a Saturday night. He's a short little fat kid with wings on his back and a little bow and arrow. And, and he, he's essentially the guy that travels everywhere with Aphrodite. And when Aphrodite finds a candidate who is going to fall head over heels in lust with somebody, then Aphrodite snaps her fingers and Eros does his thing with one of his little erotic arrows. And the arrow hits the unfortunate and unsuspecting candidate, bam, in the head or sometimes south of the waist. Uh, the stories vary and that person, of course, falls head over heels in lust with whoever Aphrodite decides he'll fall head over heels in lust with. So that's Eros, Aphrodite's helper. So Aphrodite turned around and said, Paris, when you see the girl, you know, just call my name three times. Eros will do his magic with the arrows and the girl will be putty in your hands. She will have no choice. It's the way I do things. And with that, Aphrodite smiled and vanished in a puff of perfumed smoke up to Mount Olympus, holding a golden apple, which she was now going to lord over the other two goddesses and make their lives miserable. And Paris, shepherd, was left, well, sitting all alone under an olive tree in the middle of the morning, kind of wondering what the heck had just happened to him in the last 25 minutes and worried a little bit that the whole thing might have been some sort of a, a dream or some sort of a hallucination brought on by eating bad mushrooms at lunch that day. But he realized that that couldn't be the case. It really must have happened. It felt very real. So he thought, well, I know what I'll do. I know who can tell me whether it's real or not. I'll just go back to my shepherd's hut and I'll talk to my wife. My wife, Anoni. And folks, if you remember, Paris, when he had turned about 17 years old, had been living alone in the shepherd's hut. His father had passed away, or his stepfather. And this mountain nymph, this demigod, this immortal demigod, Anoni had stepped into Paris's life and the two of them had moved in and they were desperately, desperately happy. And Anoni was wonderful. She had done great things with the shepherd's hut. She had turned it into a rather beautiful little home. And, and, and Anoni was very easy on the eyes and being immortal, she was always going to be easy on the eyes. And the other thing that was remarkable is that Anoni seemed to genuinely, genuinely love Paris in spite of the fact that, well, as I've told you, he wasn't the sharpest knife in the block and his ambitions didn't really extend much beyond looking after 15 sheep. Well, Paris thought Anoni, she, she's a mountain nymph, she's a deity, she, she, she'll know whether the story was true. So Paris had rushed back to tell his wife the story of what had transpired that day under the olive tree. Well, he got into the story and Anoni immediately verified that it had happened. She said, yeah, those are the goddesses. Yeah, yeah, those are them. And Anoni, of course, didn't hang out on Mount Olympus, but she knew these goddesses. And she was really, really excited as Paris went on to explain how it had morphed from a beauty contest into a bribery contest. And, and then Paris had turned around and he had outlined the three bribes that the goddesses had given him to choose between. And and, and Anoni said, well, well, which one did you take, Paris? Did, 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 you, take, did you take power or, or did you take military prowess in battle? And Suddenly, there was an awkward silence in the house, and Anoni looked at Paris, and she realized that Paris hadn't chosen either of those two gifts, that Paris had instead chosen the insatiable lust of the hottest woman on the planet instead. And, and Anoni was briefly troubled, and she thought, what is this? And, and then she laughed, and she smiled, and she ran over, and she threw her arms around Paris and hugged him and said, you silly boy, you didn't have to choose that gift because you already have it. You know that I'm beautiful. You know I'm an immortal nymph, way more than any human being should be allowed to have. And, and I feel that way about you, Paris, and I will continue to feel that way about you forever. You, you could have chosen two of the other gifts, you silly boy, because you already have the insatiable lust of a really hot goddess. What more could a boy ask? And that's when Anoni suddenly realized that Paris, who used to go all soft and melty to her hugs, had suddenly frozen up and 
the whole devastating, shattering truth of what her husband Paris was about to do overwhelmed the Noni. Paris kind of stepped back. He looked at her a little bit sheepishly, and then he said, Yeah, well, uh, you know, I didn't know I was a prince, and I didn't know there was a whole world of uh, really hot women out there, and Aphrodite promised me something pretty spectacular, and... And without any further discussion or conversation or apology, Paris walked out on the only good thing that had ever happened to him in his life since the day he had been spared those 18 years ago by a shepherd. He just walked out on her, heading towards Troy and his destiny and some fantasy girl promised by Aphrodite. Well, Anoni's final words are recorded. We don't know her tone of voice when she said those words, but we know what she said to Paris as he walked away from their life together. And only turned around and either crying possibly or screaming and raging possibly or maybe both at the same time. And only had said, Paris, someday you will need me. And on that day, I want you to remember what you just did to me now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if that doesn't sound like prophecy and foreshadowing, I don't know what does sound like prophecy and foreshadowing. And the one thing that I can now guarantee and promise you is that it is inevitable that at some stage in the future telling of this huge, wonderful epic story, Anoni has to make a reappearance. Because when you say lines like that in a story, you get to come back and use them later on in the plot. It's just the delicious way that these stories work. But in the meantime, Paris was off to Troy, about to see whether Aphrodite's magic would work and his mind on nothing more than what that fantasy hodicy was going to look like and what that fantasy hottie was going to do. And ladies and gentlemen, I think as Paris approaches the gates of Troy, it's a good place to wrap up the episode because what's going to happen inside of those gates... Well, that's an entirely new and interesting story, and it's going to take me a little while to outline it. It's going to be delicious. So, if you're willing to stick around for another 10 or 12 minutes, I'm going to spend a bit of time playing around with some of the backstory and some of the really cool issues that come out of this, and we're going to talk a little bit about how to recognize these goddesses when you see them in paintings and works and arts and things like that, and maybe we might even talk a little wee bit about timelines and chronology inside of stories, because some of you likely have a few troubling questions. So I'm, I'm going to stop for 30 seconds so those of you who want to leave can sort of hit stop and get on with your lives and then we'll pick up with the post-story commentary. So I've been telling this story for quite a while to different audiences and I have a common experience when I tell the story. Most of the time when I tell this particular episode of the story, about 80, 90% of I mean, the people listening to the story just throw themselves into the story and they absolutely love it. And, and, and then there's the, the 10 or 15% of the audience that get this troubled look in their face and they get confused and, and they get this pained, agonizing look in their face. And inevitably, when I'm done telling it, I wander over and say, what's bugging you? They turn around and they say, I'm doing the math. The timelines don't add up. I'm really, really confused. Uh, uh, you know, it sounds as though the beauty contest is happening 18 years after the apple was thrown into the into the hall in Mount Olympus. Are you saying it took Zeus, King of the Gods, 18 years to find a human judge for the contest? Like, like I, I know Hermes had a hard time finding a judge, but 18 years, like, what's happening to the timelines here, Jeff? And 
at that point, I'm sort of having to smile and look at these people and say, well, yeah, there, there's a little bit of a, a, a glitch in the timelines and, and you caught it and, and it's bugging you. And, and then I go on to explain a couple of ways that they can think about it. The first way of dealing with these timeline glitches, when you get to these big epic stories that are grounded in the oral tradition and suddenly the timelines don't make sense, the best thing to do is to basically look the other way and not pursue your questions too carefully. Just pretend it's not there. Hopefully the problem will go away and it won't distract too much from the story. This is sort of like the willing suspension of disbelief model. Just, well, that's the way the story works. Who am I to judge? Let's get back to the plot. Now, some of you, you're happy with that, but other people are going to say, no, 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 I, I need a rational explanation, Jeff. So I, I can offer you the other solution. I can offer you what's sometimes referred to, it's not my idea, as, as the Einstein solution. And, and I can bring out Einstein's theory of relativity and say that, you know, the speed at which time unfolds is relative to the perspective of the person who is actually having the time unfold around them or something like that. And consequently, time up on Mount Olympus, deific time is quite different from time down here on Earth, Homo sapiens time, and consequently the gap in time, well, it only appears a gap in time because you're down here on Earth up in Mount Olympus. It's not a time problem at all. And I can try to foist it off on you that way. I don't find that very satisfying myself, but there's a few physicists that go, oh yeah, that explains everything. Thanks, Jeff. And the truth of the matter is, if you're really worried about the timeline, I'll just tell you the truth of the problem. The problem is basically that these stories all originated inside of the oral tradition. And, and, and the stories, when I'm cobbling together the plot here, come from remaining fragments and bits and pieces that I'm having to pull together. And it turns out that we have the fragments of an ancient work. I, th I think it's called uh, the Scipio. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. And, and, and in that fragment, we have the story of the wedding. And we also have accounts of the Judgment of Paris story, little bits and pieces of the two remaining. But they were clearly or likely clearly penned by or told by the same author and then written down by the same publicist at some time in history. And, and so the chronologies line up with those two. But then, of course, the story of the nightmares and the Queen of Troy and the prophecy about the torch that would burn the city to the ground and all of that. Well, it was a completely different storyteller and a completely different person writing down the chronicles when the Greeks got a written language who actually recorded that particular episode. And so the problem is the authors or the chroniclers never actually got together under a common editorial team to try to iron out the inconsistencies and the details in the plot. And this kind of thing happens in all the ancient epics that originated in the Bronze Age or even in epics that originated where you had more than one artistic contributor sort of recounting the details of the story and, and not just inside of Greek mythology. This is a problem that shows up in all the stories. If, if you go to the book of Genesis, the creation stories inside of uh, the Jewish and the Christian tradition, inside the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, you, you'll be amazed if you go back and look to discover that there's two completely independent and contradictory and conflicting creation stories. And this isn't really surprising given that obviously these creation stories originated inside of an oral tradition for some time before they ever got written down. And by the time they got written down, I guess the authors, just to play it safe, included both versions. And I don't think in any way this distracts or damages the pleasure of the story, the veracity of the stories, or in some cases, even the truths of the story. So it's not really a worry. It's just a function of ancient stories. It isn't faced by modern people working sort of like telling modern stories like J.K. Rowling or George Martin, the Game of Thrones guy who has the benefit of taking his texts to an editorial team that can go through and double check and make sure that what happens in book one doesn't contradict something that happens in book three and that kind of thing. In the ancient world, we just couldn't do that sort of editorial control. Now, Something I wanted to play with that has nothing to do with that. And that's this awesome Judgment of Paris scene. The Judgment of Paris, 
this story, this beauty contest, is likely one of the absolutely most popular stories chronicled by and documented by artists since the day that the story was first told. You will find images in sculpture and statue and then in painting and lying drawings going back to the ancient and classical Greeks all the way up to the present depicting this famous Judgment of Paris story. And once you get to the Middle Ages, the number of Judgment of Paris paintings just goes completely, completely, completely crazy. And, and you can see why this would be the case. I mean, it's a, it's a really fun story. Everybody knows a version of the story. And if you think about it, if you're an artist, what do you get to do if you decide, well, my next subject is going to be I'm going to paint the Judgment of Paris? Well, you get to put out a, you know, a request for additions to every gorgeous woman within 100 kilometers or 100 miles of your city and say, I, I need you to come in and be one of the three most radiant goddesses in Mount Olympus. And and when all the models arrive and they stand there in front of you, you say, now, ladies, I need you to disrobe. Thanks. I'll be painting you for the next few days. For some artists, this would be a pretty sweet gig. And there are artists that have made a living doing this pretty sweet gig, obviously. And my favorite guy is a, is a, is a guy from from the mid-1500s. His name is Lucas Cranach the Elder. And uh, Lucas was so enamored with painting Judgment of Paris scenes that well, we have 22 different versions of the painting done by our buddy Lucas that have survived. He, he, he obviously it was absolutely took great delight in bringing women into the studio and saying, over here, girls, you get to be Aphrodite. Now, if you go 100 years forward, the most famous of the paintings, of course, are done by Rubens. And Rubens has two, three, possibly even more versions of this painting out there. And if you actually go to my website right now, if you go to trojanwarpodcast.com, beside this episode, you'll see that I've included the most famous of the Rubens Judgment of Paris paintings. And, and the painting basically, you can see when you look at the painting, you can have an awful lot of fun because you can see who these goddesses are. So just a couple of pro tips. When you approach one of these paintings and you're going, well, how do I tell which goddess is which? Here are the things that you need to be going looking for. The way that you identify Athena in these paintings is very clear. Athena, I told you, is a goddess of military prose and victory, and she's always depicted with a helmet and with this shield, with this fearsome, fierce sort of monster face on the shield. Now, in an awful lot of the Judgment of Paris paintings, you'll see that she's taken off the helmet and the shield because it's supposed to be a beauty contest, and you know it's really hard to look hot when you're holding a huge shield with a gorgon head on it, but you'll see the shield always lying beside Athena, and, and that's how you can tell that Athena is Athena in the paintings. Um, Hera is really, really... Oh, one more thing about Athena that's really cool. Athena always has beside her, if you look at the paintings, particularly from the Renaissance on, Athena is always depicted beside a representative bird. And since Athena is a goddess of wisdom, the bird you'll always see nestled someplace into the painting is an owl. And if you take a look at the painting on the website and you go looking, it's a little bit of a treasure where's Waldo kind of game, but you will find the owl beside Athena. He's just peeping out of a corner there. Hera is also represented by a bird, and very appropriately, given Hera's personality and disposition and temperament, the bird that Hera is represented by is a peacock. And, you know, Hera likes to preen, she likes to show off, and she tends to overdo the gaudy colors and makeup, and, well, it's not a surprise that the peacock is her bird. The most interesting of the goddesses in the paintings, for all kinds of reasons, some of which are likely patently obvious to you, is, is Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite in these paintings, the way that you can tell Aphrodite is essentially because Aphrodite is the goddess in these paintings who will be revealing the most sexuality. Now, it depends on the culture and the time period doing the painting. There are versions of this painting where more modest painters and more modest times keep all three goddesses fully clothed. But if they do that, 
Aphrodite will be the goddess who's, well, just sort of let a little bit of a robe slip and you'll be able to catch just a little bit of a glimpse of boob or something like that. And the other two goddesses will be very, very, very modestly covered. But Aphrodite will be the one that's showing Paris just a little bit more skin. In other cultures that were really happy to paint full nudity, well, the way that you tell Aphrodite is that if all the goddesses are nude, Aphrodite will be the one that's actually showing Paris the full Monty. The other two goddesses will be giving a little bit of butt or a little bit of boo, but Aphrodite will be turning around and saying, here's the goods, boy, what do you think? So she's the one you're kind of looking for. Uh, other characters in these paintings, just for a little bit of fun, uh, Hermes, the messenger of the gods. Well, in the painting on my website, you'll find him. He's over there and you'll see that he's actually holding the golden apple on Paris's behalf. And, and he's got wings on the helmet and wings on the ankles. And then the other guy, of course, in the painting is going to be Paris. And you can decide, uh, the, the Greeks, Paris's contemporaries, considered Paris the best or the second best looking guy in the entire Bronze Age world. The only competition for Paris in the looks department was with Achilles. And that really came down to a matter of taste and temperament. Achilles was like this alpha male buff warrior killing gorgeous machine. And and Paris, of course, was sort of long and lean and lithe and sensitive with dark hair and pouty sensitive lips and deep, dark, brown, dewy eyes. So a different sort of model of, of male beauty and sexuality. And it was really a matter of taking your pick and which of the two you liked the most. One of the things I find kind of fun is that the movie Troy, which generally gets all the details of this story completely wrong and ass backwards. Well, Troy does a pretty good job on, on the two lead males. Achilles is played by a sort of buffed up, roided looking Brad Pitt character. And that's sort of one way of being hot as a guy, I suppose. And, and the other guy, of course, Paris is played by sort of an almost elfin Orlando Bloom. So you can take your pick. Now, one final little anecdote, and then I'll wrap things up. About these paintings, these famous Judgment of Paris paintings, Back a few years ago, uh, I, I have two sons, and, and back a few years ago when one of my sons was just entering those very early awkward teenage years, he, he wandered into my office one evening while I was actually working on a project related to the story I'm just telling you. Now, you've got to imagine the scene in my office. I had a huge big screen computer, and because I was particularly working and, and interested in this story at the time, I had Rubens' Judgment of Paris painting up as my screensaver. So when, when my, my awkward early teen son walked into the room, there he saw his dad sitting looking at, well, a screensaver depicting three very naked ladies. And, and, and my son, for a brief moment, was horrified and kind of looked at me and he stumbled out of the room in a hurry. So, you know, I, I gave him a few minutes and then I went, called him back into the room and said, so, so you're worried a little bit that your dad's looking at naked ladies on the internet. And I thought we were going to have some kind of a conversation there. And I was going to assure him that the naked ladies I was looking at were painted in 1630 and, and not exactly what we'd call 21st century porn. He had nothing to worry about. But it turned out that my son wasn't actually worried about his dad looking at naked ladies on the internet. He was a 21st century boy. What he was really worried about was the women I was looking at. And, and he stumbled for the words and he was clumsy and he didn't have the language for it. But what he was basically querying and, and, and confused about is, is he said, Dad, the women in those paintings, those, those women are, they're positively, well, Dad, they're Rubenesque. And that wasn't the phrase he used, which was a lot clumsier and far less sensitive. But he was pointing out something interesting about the paintings. And 
being a former high school teacher, that gave me a wonderful opportunity to sit the guy down and, and force him to listen to a long, tedious lecture. Well, we reviewed via an internet search all the different paintings of the Judgment of Paris down through the centuries. And, and I worked towards my thesis, which I was trying to explain to him and point out, which is that definitions of female beauty are always culturally implicated by time and place and society. And that we really can't say anything about female beauty because female beauty seems to go in and out of fashion well, at a remarkably quick pace. So Rubens was actually painting the hottest three models he could find in the city. Maybe they're not what my 21st century son would have thought were the hottest three models he'd find if he went looking. But that just tells us not about what women's beauty is like. It tells us what the fashion industry and popular entertainment does and what media does. And and it went on and on and on. And after about 25 minutes, my son yawned, gracefully bowed out of the room and escaped. Lecture over. And that's likely a fairly good cue for me to do the same with you folks who have been hanging into this point. So I'm going to uh, bow out of the room at this stage and wrap up episode number four, The Judgment of Paris, and encourage you to head over to the website, uh, trojanwarpodcast.com. And any day now, episode number five will be up and waiting for you. And you can find out what happens to Paris when he gets to the city of Troy and who the woman is who is going to rock that boy's world. So... Have yourself a great day. Talk to you again soon. Bye for now.